Welcome to the Legends of Oral Regeneration by the Osteology Foundation. One host, one guest, and a whole bunch of experience and expertise. Meet the people behind the names and get unique insights. Well, hello, Julio. How are you? Tamia, great pleasure to chat with you today. So good to see you. So for those of you who don't know, um, Professor Giulio Rasperini is a professor at the University of Milan, um, and he also has appointments at the University of Michigan at Ann Arbor and at Harvard. And um, we're so excited to have him here today um, to talk about digital technologies and oral regeneration. Um, and in particular, to tell us, do a little bit of a deep dive, tell us a little bit more about some of his work um, utilizing digital technologies to generate 3D printed bio for guided tissue regeneration. And I know your passion, Julio, is saving teeth and, um, you know, growing periodontal attachment back for uh, sites where, you know, many people would have been unsavable. So, you know, tell us a little bit about how these digital technologies are fitting into that passion. Thank you, Mia. So this uh, particular field because as you know, I spread out a little bit imperial about surgical techniques and uh, other things. About this specific talk, topic, we did an, um, a very advanced perio case where we have lost only one tooth, but uh, all the other teeth were saved. Then there was a defect that remained and I showed this case to Will Chernobyl. And uh, together he explained, look in Michigan, we are working on uh, this uh, uh, 3D printing scaffolding, and uh, we did uh, preclinical uh, studies on animals uh, in, uh, with uh, Chanho Park and other team. Uh, Hollister is uh, like a guru on biomaterials, was also working with polycaprolactone, etc. And so we had the uh, consent from the patient. We checked to have the ethical board approval from the University of Milan. And then together with uh, Michigan's team, let's say, uh, we worked on uh, to have a, out of a convincing scan. We, uh, we, we developed a customized 3D uh, scaffold that was uh, customized for the patient and was made of polycaprolactone and, uh, and and it was a success for over one year. For over one year, it worked very well. But then we, I had a student in these days. Now she's an uh, uh, associate professor in Gothenburg, Farah Hazad. So, and she was making her residence PhD program at the University of Milan. So with her, I asked, okay, let's do a systematic review on the biomaterials that we can use on 3D printed scaffold, which biomaterial can be used and the benefit. And this is, is a widely uh, quoted, this paper was very well done. Uh, and Farah Hazard was the first name and was the last one. And then uh, the aim was to uh, move forward on this topic. But then we realized that great part of the defects are, uh, are, uh, are 
are very similar in the mouth, actually. If we pre-customize, like if we prepare uh, like five, six type of products, they can almost fit at least 90% of the defects. And uh, so we stopped a little bit. And uh, But uh, the idea, I think, is very cool to have a chair-side uh, uh, possibility in a safe way to customize the uh, the 3D printed scaffold for our patients and, and to help them. For and both, the, for perio and also for implants, of course. Um, and potentially um, the, the regeneration around implants has been shown to be more difficult than around teeth. But the, the case that you presented was a mandibular canine. And you show one year data. Have you followed that patient out beyond that one year? Do you? Oh, do you no, yeah. What, what, what happened, if you see the paper has been described, is reported. Mm-hmm. Uh, immediately after one year, like at 13 months, he uh, started to feel something. <clears throat> okay. And so I had to re-entry and to remove like a sequestrum because... Because this was, I wanted to do everything like so perfect. So I used I used the bioresorbable screw to keep to keep the graft stable. Actually, we find out that the polycaprolactone after uh, one year was resorbed only in twenty five percent. The seventy five percent of the scaffold was still present there. And uh, the pins were completely resolved. So I think in this case was better to have a metal screw to keep. But let's say the the better solution would be to have a a scaffold that resolves faster than uh, than that. I mean, should be completely resolved after one year, maybe after nine months should be. So we are still working on the perfect biomaterial for that. Well, and and there's the rub, right? We are trying to do something that um, we're we're trying to mimic Mother Nature as much as possible. But you know, there are so many other factors going on in these defects, including you know the the right amount of inflammation, not too much, not too little. The the right amount of cell occlusion, not too much, not too little. So all of these things are the the things that we're working on to get there. What are some of the digital technologies or new materials that you're the most excited about? Okay, now there are, uh, uh, I also work with my daughter in my office. She uh, takes care more of the uh, prosto restorative part, let's say. And uh, now I, I, I will not quote the brand, but we just got a brand new scanner and she's so excited about that. I mean, it's it's definitely the present of dentistry, and and the, of course the future is moves in this direction. And also to to talk to the lab, also the three D printing. In those days when we did the paper, we used a machine that was huge, and now you can you can get the same result with in the, after eight years. So it's it's uh, really after like five, 10 years already, the technology is complete. And it's interesting to keep going on that. 
One of the things that I'm really excited to see where it goes and what its utility is for us, particularly in periodontal regeneration and peri-implant regeneration, but also in guided bone regeneration, are some of the electrospun membranes that have a directionality where we can add growth factors, you know, preferentially to one side or another um, so that you could put a bone morphogenic protein towards the osseous tissue and a platelet derived growth factor tissue and, you know, enhance healing in a way that is controlled, um, and, and less, um, scattershot than just delivering the, um, the liquid material. So, uh, I think, I think there's a lot of things out there that are, are coming. And as you point out, you know, the, the speed of this information and the speed at which we're beginning to be able to access it um, from a financial and a feasibility standpoint is really unbelievable. You know, that time from the conception to the, the operatory is really um, speeding up for all of us in dentistry. Absolutely, absolutely. Another very exciting topic I'm facing now is uh, about uh, epigenetics, you know, um, because uh, I I get mad when I when I hear in meetings like or people that come to me and says, oh, yeah, I removed the teeth because I had periodontitis. The dentist told me that forever I would have periodontitis. They could do something, but after three years I would have to remove the teeth. So now. I, I know I look very fresh and young, actually at a certain age. And, <laughs> and uh, so I have to tell you, I have patients that came with uh, uh, severe periodontitis where the dentist wanted to remove all the teeth. And we actually, most of the teeth are still in the mouth with very few extraction. And most of them, they come like two, three times a year and they never, never show again bleeding on probing, and really the disease is gone. So because there are some, as you know, I'm not talking to you now, I'm talking to who's listening. <laughs> you, you know these things better than me, that, that there is a genetical factor, like for example, you have blue eyes or black eyes, and this you cannot change. But some of the expression of the genes can be modified by the lifestyle and what you do and the inflammation itself, is a big modifier of uh, of the epigenetics. So we published in 2017 on JCP, a paper on epigenetics, again with Farah Hazad as a first author. And, um, and uh, that was uh, uh, to show how actually treating the periodontal disease, you can modify the epigenetic expression in certain biomarkers, already in short term after like 15 days and uh, uh, two months. Now I have a paper in my hands, it's ready to be submitted for publication, where I recall all the patients that were treated like 20 years ago, and they have all the teeth and never had periodontitis again in their life. We harvested a little piece of uh, a biopsy, a little piece of tissue from the palate, and we, with the methylation, we compare this group of patients with patients that never had periodontitis. And I can anticipate you 
that the expression of the same biomarkers looks actually very stable, very similar, like patients that never had periodontitis in their life. So it makes really sense to treat uh, uh, the periodontally involved teeth because really we can really fight with this disease and to bring the patient back to how they were before. I mean, avoiding the implant. I love to place implants. I love to place implants, but when it's needed, when it's needed. And I think that those measures of either methylation or carboxylation that are associated with those epigenetic changes are an interesting endpoint to look at for success or failure of our periodontal treatment. You know, I mean, one of the things that I sort of gnash my teeth about in periodontology is that our best tool currently is a teeny tiny metal ruler, right? (laughs) And um, as we get more sophisticated with the technologies, digital printing, um, some of of these other advanced technologies, advanced adjuncts um, and growth factors, I think another thing we really have to look at is advanced diagnostic tools. And how are we using some of the learning that we have about things like epigenetic changes that occur? Um, to really find appropriate diagnoses and endpoints so that we can predict outcomes for those those 20 years, those patients that you're talking about. Yeah. I also think it's, it's interesting when you talk about epigenetics, um, I always think it may be one of the reasons why our surgical patients do better long we offer them an opportunity to remove those methylated or carboxylated cells within the sulcus and in a lower inflammation environment, lower exposure to um, some of the virulence factors and, and periodontal pathogens actually have new regeneration of those tissues. Um, so it's, you know, the pendulum swings, non-surgical, surgical, and we may be coming to a happy medium with a minimally invasive or microsurgical area where we are treating some of that affected epithelium, but we're also trying to be as gentle and as kind to the patient as mm. possible. I know you are a, a big microsurgical fan, um, and a real master at that. So how has that changed your practice? No, I, I thank you, Mia. You know, this, this is very important from the very beginning, actually. It's very important to me, microinvasive also when we do non-surgical, because uh, often, uh, for example, we don't use anymore the regular curettes, the greasy curettes. We just use uh, the airflow, we use uh, the... Um, ultrasounds with a very thin tip. We rinse into the pockets with uh, chlorhexidine and peroxide. And then we use mini curette to finalize the case. The important issue is not to uh, damage the soft tissue, shouldn't be removed. You know, in the past, you know that uh, many people in Italy, at least, they still call uh, uh, like a curettage, you know that. Oh uh, yes. According to ADA, has been removed. American uh, Dental Association mm-hmm. uh, curettage has been removed it's, from the yeah, it, in two thousand and two. Yeah. Uh, so it's 20, 21 years. That doesn't exist. So we should be 
just remove the biofilm from the root surface, at least to break the biofilm, to go with directly with uh, uh, antiseptics like peroxide and and to be very gentle. And uh, eventually, in specific cases, we can add the antibiotic therapy. I know there is a big, uh, many people is against this, etc. but some, most of the people, what they do, they extract the teeth and then they place implant and they give the antibiotics. If you give the antibiotics before, at least you save, you save more teeth. And, so uh, and there is a strong evidence on that from, um, I mean, from the studies from, uh, I mean, David Herrera, Hafaji, uh, reviewed Mark- by Sastra, yeah. Magda Ferres, and uh, uh, also there is a German group uh, with uh, Pete Elcox. And there is strong evidence, very good uh, randomized control clinical trial. Of course, we don't have to give antibiotic with, to all the patients, but when there is a severe periodontitis, very deep pocket, a lot of bleeding, superation, that's, that's it's not just the treatment with antibiotics. It's, it's an addition also the antibiotics that may help significantly. And then surgically, and then surgically, the uh, actually I have I have two two paths. When when there is beautiful tissues and a defect underneath, now with microsurgical approach you can just regenerate the defect. But associated to the bone defect, there is a mucogingival defect or a missing papilla. Now you need to graft and advance the flap coronal and to increase the thickness. And there you cannot be minimally invasive, but to treat simultaneously the intrabony defect with the soft tissues. But most of the intrabony defect you can treat with uh, like a microsurgical approach. You know, you mentioned the antibiotics, and I think that's it. It is a hot topic. You you hit it the nail. You hit the nail on the head. But it's also, in my opinion, one of the best examples of where we, as healthcare professionals, can get um, tunnel vision when we're looking at things like systematic reviews and meta analyses. Meaning that. Sometimes the outliers and how they behave are way more interesting than, okay, treat to the mean. So we all know, you know, these big systematic reviews that say, yes, there's a small but statistically significant increase in um, clinical attachment level gain or, or improved outcomes if we treat periodontitis patients with antibiotics during non-surgical or surgical therapy. But the truth of the matter is, is that most people don't show a gain and then some people show a lot of gain. So how do we, if we're thinking about being good stewards of our antibiotics, how do we find those outliers and then treat them? And I think, you know, that is, again, it's that, what are the endpoints? What are we treating to? What what are we really looking for? And that speaks to, you know, some of the evolving assessments for diagnosis and, Mia, and treatment. If you, if you think about that, it's changed a lot by different countries. I know, for example, often in United States or in the country where there are specialists in periodontology, we don't have in Italy, okay? We have guys like uh, Cortellini, like uh, Zucchelli, like, uh, but we are not specialists in period. That, that's funny, no? 
because don't have the the prior specialty. But um, uh, but we we treat of course uh, perio. We see a lot of patients, and there are some countries where uh, you. Uh, specialist in perio receive the patient from the general practice, okay? And what they do, they already extract the teeth before to send you the patient. Maybe to make a little bit more money. So you cannot see the defect that probably we see, you know? Like in Brazil, there are many studies on antibiotics because they have a lot of people and they see many patients with disease and these patients have the benefit in using the antibiotics. When um, uh, in the United States, often you see the patient, the real predominant tooth uh, with, with the, the big disease has been already extracted. And, and so you maybe face the minor, uh, in general, eh, the, the minor um, periodontal defects that we almost don't even consider periodontal disease. <laughs> <laughs> For us, periodontal diseases, when really the pockets are 15 millimeters, like uh, with the real pockets, not like eight, nine, it's okay, we can treat. But uh, the real pockets are over 10 millimeters and uh, generalized. These are the periodontal patients. It, it's interesting because I do think, like we were talking about the pendulum swinging, there was a point where... And for sure, that's where I practice, but probably elsewhere in the in the world, I, I can't speak for them, where I think we were as a profession, a dentist as a profession, not periodontist necessarily specifically, but where we were far more willing to take out and um, viewed implants in some ways as a panacea. You know, we were going to get this third dentition, titanium dentition, right? Um, but I think, and I'm hopeful that that pendulum is swinging back and we realize that saving teeth is, is really advantageous both for the patients and for long-term outcomes. You know, if you look at the data from Lisa Heights Mayfield, where she says 75% of the time, if we try to treat periimplantitis at five years, it's either recurrent or we haven't um, been effective in its treatment. We have to save teeth. You know, we honestly, also, what do you think about that? I mean, I'm, I'm always concerned by a dentist that extract the teeth like, like this, and then they spend a lot of time to try to save an implant. An implant is a screw. Come on. <laughs> you remove it, you put a new one. No, to save a tooth is important because it's an organ. It's a functional organ. So I, I can give all I can to try to save a tooth. But uh, to save an implant is just an economical issue because the tooth is the tooth of the patient, but the implant is your implant. And so you, you want to save it because there is the crown on top, etc. But... To remove an implant is very easy and you can replace with a brand new one and that's it. You can discuss about the economical thing together with the patient. And uh, most of the time doesn't, I mean, it doesn't make sense to spend so much time in trying to save, <laughs> to save the implants. <laughs> no, if, if, if you told me you could spend time and effort on saving teeth or saving implants, I would always choose teeth. And and like you say, you said that the tooth is a living organ. What I tell patients and, and our students as well is 
a tooth extraction is an amputation. Yeah, it is. You are removing a body part and, and you cannot take that lightly. I take teeth out. I do. But every time I do, it hurts my bone a bit. You know, I, I, I try to find a way to save teeth. And, and even in, in a patient who is losing teeth, if there are teeth that are savable, I want to save them. That's, you know, that's what I'm in the business of doing, you know, saving teeth for, for patients and making them healthy. And to treat it as cavalier, to remove some of the body parts. Unfortunately, I think the problem is, in general, that uh, to losing a finger is, is something very bad. Yeah. But to losing a tooth is normal. For some, some people, even think it's better. I have a brand new implant uh, and a zirconia, white, super white, bleaching white, and it's going to be much better than my teeth. They should... If you are honest, we tell to the patients that is not true, and uh, to the colleagues, it's it's never true. I mean, of course, we can do this type of things, but when the teeth are really lost, but there are colleagues that extract it too easily, I think, and this is my my fight. <laughs> we should well, have people to know this because people they are not aware about that. And some I, it, people just train, some people just finish dentistry, they learn how to place implant, and that's it. And this is their job. But there is endo, there is ortho, there is a prosto can be made also natural teeth. And we can do, there is perio, and we can preserve predictably for a long time the health of the patient and the aesthetic as well. And I think, think uh, Mia, another thing that has changed in my practice clinically, I'm much more focused on, on soft tissues than I was before. Now, even when I do periodontal regeneration, if there is a thin phenotype, I always add connective tissue. I do much more connective tissue or soft tissue like uh, uh, oriented surgery now compare when I was doing in the past. So you hit just on what I was going to ask you, um, which is when we're looking at these multidisciplinary cases, and I think that when we're talking about particularly compromised periodontal dentition, oftentimes it does require a multidisciplinary approach, pros, ortho, endo. Um, one of the things that, that I see is that, you know, hard and soft tissue regeneration, phenotype modification has become a bigger and bigger part of my practice, um, both for teeth and for implants. I, I, I hate to admit, but, you know, when I entered dentistry last century, I don't know that we thought about peri-implant phenotype in the same way that we think about it. Um, but that Absolutely. has really... If you remember, Mia, we, there was a, a paper in the 1994, 1996, you were not even born. And, oh, stop. <laughs> and there was this paper from Venstrom. Uh, uh, Venstrom is, is a great guru, okay, of soft tissues. And uh, together with Benghazi, they published that uh, um, the, the around implants, if there was uh, alveolar mucosa or keratinized tissue, basically there was no difference. So you can keep alveolar mucosa around the implants. So we 
didn't even thought that it could be wrong. I mean, and so for like about 10 years, no one was like trying to change this. And then it took a little bit of time to have like Uli Grunder and other people to, to bring some evidence that actually to have keratinized tissue is better. And now it's obvious. And now, we, of course, we all know about that. That is uh, much better. Also, I spend more time in the implant position. I About digital dentistry, I almost all the implants I place, I place with the guided way. I plan and I have a surgical guide, even if it looks easy, but you can really 3D place your implant in a perfect position. And I place the implant a little bit deeper than what I was doing before. And if I can say, I'm using hybrid implants. Implants that have like one third, the coronal third of the, of the implant is uh, machined and not with rough surface because to prevent perimplantitis, et cetera. So that's the, the big changes that I am doing. Um, you know, in the Wenstrom article, they looked at plaque levels, but a lot of the papers that came out after that really looked at implant survival. And, you know, when we went back and took a deeper dive, it was like, well, maybe we're, maybe our outcomes are the wrong thing. Maybe we're not looking at alveolar bone loss around the implants or, um, a diagnosis of perimplant mucositis or periimplantitis. You know, we're just looking, are they, are they present or not? And, you know, that's where statistics can sometimes hide. Um, yeah. And in those days, if you remember, the marginal bone loss was considered physiological. Yes. You know, it was a physiological yes. marginal bone loss, which is about the remodeling, uh, but it's not. Because if the tissue is thick and keratinized, it's, uh, you don't have it as Linkevichus and other evidence came out. And those Linkevichus articles, you know, talk not just about the keratinization or attachment of the but tissue, the but also the, the tissue height, the thickness. And that really seems to matter. And so that deeper placement that you're talking about kind of leads into that as well. And also, no, funny is that in the same years that Menstrom did the clinical like demonstration that you don't need keratinized tissue. There was actually Tord Berglund uh, together with Jan Linde, just the two of them that published the histological studies in 1996. And they published uh, the dog histology that uh, they showed like always around the implants, there is an epithelium that migrated two millimeters and then over one millimeter of connective tissue. If there is, Okay, if there is not this high supercrystally, what happened? The bone will resorb. But this was an histological study in dogs, and we all didn't pay much attention on this. But he said in 1996 exactly what Linkevich was saying like 15 years after, like 20 years after. No, it's it's very true. And I think, you know, that shift that paradigm shift in paying attention to the soft tissue may have also helped us when it comes to how we consider oral regeneration um you know unfortunately 
general recession and um, certainly a lack of keratinizing attached gingiva, I think are some of the most underdiagnosed periodontal issues that we see. Um, and, you know, for us in the States, it's often that we see those patients and they've had, you know, class five composites, or they've had multiple yeah. rounds of restoration. And so now we're having to claw that back and maybe they've had secondary decay around the restorations because they've had these exposed root surfaces where, you know, for me as a periodontist, I want the message to be, if the tissue that you're missing is hard and soft tissue, how do we get you back the hard and soft tissue? <laughs> um, you know, why are we, we are in a unique position as periodontists, as hard and soft tissue experts, where we can actually repair and replace what disease has taken away. And there's very few other areas of dentistry where that is the case. Most of the time we are treating caries caries, and then adding a foreign substance. Um, so if we absolutely should, um, and I'm sure that that has become a bigger and bigger part of your practice and also, you know, your, your research. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> Um, well, give us a little hint. You mentioned that you have a paper sitting on your desk ready to be submitted. Give us a little hint of what we're going to see oh, from actually, you. I have, yeah, I have uh, two about epigenetics. I have two about epigenetics and I have a surgical technique that is, has been accepted on the International Journal of Periodontics and Restorative Dentistry. You will see the beginning of the year. And it's cool, again, it's about the possibility to advance the flap coronally and uh, add the coronary and treat simultaneously the intrabony defect and the soft tissues. So it's, uh, it's interesting, especially when uh, the papilla doesn't have a perfect anatomy for a coronally advanced flap, for example. It's maybe a weak, like a recession type two, the papilla is not very high. You can maybe see this. So you can actually uh, tunnel that part of the flap. So you don't need to make an incision level of papilla. You can uh, push the papilla more coronal. This is one thing. And about the epigenetics. Yeah, I, as I told you, we find out that uh, the biomarkers that we used for the previous studies, uh, they, they were inflammatory, like uh, cyclooxygenesis 2, like uh, COX-2, like uh, uh, TNF-alpha, and line 1, etc. They, uh, in patients treated 20 years before and maintained for 20 years with severe periodontitis. And then uh, when compared to patients that never had periodontitis, basically the, met the methylation of this is, is, is basically similar. There is no a difference between them. And this is, I think it's beautiful no? to, to be able to say that. And uh, another that we did, because in Italy, uh, it's, it's, it's going back popular, the smoke, okay? There has been a big campaign in the past years. So uh, a lot of people reduce smoking and now it's up again. And most of the people, they use these uh, uh, like electronic cigarettes, let's call it this way. There are different systems. And so I had a pilot study 
on this where we harvested tissue and we did the methylation in patients that never smoked, in patients that smokes uh, uh, regular cigarettes, and people that smokes this. And also in this, actually, there is not a big difference between the two uh, type of smokes. And of course, there is a difference with the people that doesn't smoke. And in this case, we analyzed also precancer um, biomarkers. And also this paper is almost ready for to be submitted for publication. It's, it's uh, I think it's, we, we love this job and I like to be surrounded by uh, young uh, researcher and we try to bring new ideas and, uh, and it's cool. The, the, the field I like more, you know that, is, is surgery, surgery. So the surgical techniques and how to handle one biomaterial or the other and the aesthetics, but also this try to understand better the, the how to fight with the periodontal disease is also a very interesting topic to me. And I, I think, you know, when we look at the emerging data on electronic nicotine delivery devices versus smoking, there's even some data from um, Dr. Pranitha Kumar's lab um, where she has shown that the microbial shift that occurs in patients who use vaping devices, nicotine delivery devices versus smoking occurs earlier. And the the level of pathogenic um, microbes is higher. So I, I think it's it's interesting that you're finding similar data when you look at the epigenetic changes and the methylation, because it really speaks to um, nicotine and and those habits, basically putting their finger on both sides of the the disease progression, the pathogenesis, the, the microbiome, but also the host immunoinflammatory response. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's very interesting. It's an interesting thing. Try to have people really to, uh, to quit smoking. We should, it's never enough to, we should not give up on, on the promoting the, I mean, health life, lifestyle. <laughs> it is good so, the oral lifestyle too. So we're we're getting close to the end of our conversation today, but to circle back to regenerating periodontal defects, for you, um, if you are designing an ideal biomaterial to use in periodontal defects, what are the characteristics that you want to see and, you know, where do you expect that 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 work is going? Maybe not in my time because you know eventually I want to retire, but in our students' practice lifetimes. Okay, the best uh, the best biomaterial need to to have enough power to really induce and promote the regeneration. Um, in, in United States, you have PDGF, for example. Uh, we don't have in Europe, we have only the EMD that as, as a growth factor. Now there is a, a Regenfast is, is, a, is, a, is a new uh, product that uh, we are investigating that can be added with some collagen matrices as a scaffold, also for soft tissue to induce. I, I have no data yet, but uh, it seems interesting. 
And so we need some powerful uh, growth factor and a good scaffold. And then a proper surgical technique that allowed you to, uh, to, to keep this biomaterial stable because you have regeneration only with stability and blood supply and techniques that allowed you to not to risk to lose the papillas. So that's why nowadays more and more there are techniques that go epical in a, with access from a, like a Vista technique, for example, or ICAST technique, NIPSA technique, all these approaches that from the buccal uh, access. And um, yeah, I think uh, I, I think it's, it's, it's super interesting. That, but I have to tell you, I do less regeneration compared years ago because I'm very successful with the non-surgical. So with the non-surgical, I we can close the great majority of the pockets. And um, so if you want to talk about marketing, it's much better to charge more than non-surgical and less the surgery because you, you need surgery less and less. Of course, with the surgery, you repair the tissue that has been lost. And so that's why often you need simultaneously to treat also the soft tissue because you want to give back the aesthetic or to change the phenotype. And this is very exciting. I mean, I, I, I love this part of the work. Very cool. Very cool. Well, thank you for sharing your extensive knowledge of periodontal regeneration, dental implants, diagnostics. We covered a whole range of things today. It was excellent. Um, and, you know, I always look forward to seeing you, hearing you talk. So I know I will see you in a few weeks. Um, and I, I look forward to you imparting your wisdom to, um, all of our colleagues. So I hope you have a great day. You too. Thank you, Mia. Ciao. 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 One host, one guest, and a whole bunch of experience and expertise. Meet the people behind the names and get unique insights.